Hello there. Thanks for checking out the podcast. Coffee with a Christian is an organization that believes that everyone is deeply loved by God, in spite of their shortcomings and failures, and that everyone needs the grace that was poured out through Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection, that by trusting in Jesus' work, anyone can be forgiven and renewed through God's love. Learn more by connecting with a volunteer through the app or on our website at coffeewithachristian.org. For this month's podcast, I'd like to present you with an extended conversation that I had with Chris Barris, the lead pastor of Area 10 Church. Chris was kind enough to sit down with me to talk about life, the role of the church, and of course, because of the election, just a little bit of politics. You can learn more about Chris and his church at area10church.com. And just as a primer, this episode was recorded before the election, so if any of our political commentary is dated, well, yeah, just go ahead and ignore it. And finally, before we get started, I just wanted to announce a special matching opportunity that we have until the end of the year. This ministry depends on listeners like you to both spread the gospel and keep the conversation going. So check out our donate page on the website and prayerfully consider adding this ministry to your end of year giving. Coffee with a Christian is a registered 501c3, so all donations are tax deductible. With all that said, on with the show. Yeah, Chris, thanks for making time for me today. I, I do appreciate it. Before we kind of get into anything too complicated or deep, can you tell me a little bit about yourself, uh, where you grew up, your family background? Sure. Yeah, uh, so I grew up, uh, I'm Chris Paris. I grew up in Florida and near, near Tampa and got out of Florida as soon as I could at age 18 because it's so hot there. It's just like on the edge of hell all, all year round. Uh, and so I went up to Cincinnati, Ohio and uh, went to college up there. I went to a Bible college because I had gotten pretty involved in high school in my church and I liked I liked the people in the church and I liked what I was learning there. And so I decided to go pursue ministry. Um, I was also really into music. Um, both my parents are musical. My dad was a saxophone player. He had a band. My, my mom was keyboards, piano. Um, so I, I went to Bible college to do um, church music, worship leading, that kind of stuff, and kind of got into ministry after that, um, after a brief flirtation with being a lawyer. I uh, hmm. thought about doing that too. But yeah, so that was kind of my, my background, and then um, met my now wife. Uh, we met in, in Bible college there my junior year, and we got married and moved to Colorado, lived there a couple of years, and then moved here to Virginia in the year 2000, so uh, 20 years ago. And we were in Virginia Beach for a while and then up here in Richmond. Um, and then somewhere during there, we started having children. Uh, I've got three boys that are 17, 15, and 13. And uh, they're a lot of fun. And so, yeah, that's kind of my background. I'm a, and I'm the lead pastor of a church that we started here in central Richmond in the year 2008, which actually uh, our church's 12th anniversary was just uh, two days ago. So we're, wow. we're, we're uh, yeah, it was anniversary week here for us. So. Yeah, but we love Richmond. We love being here, um, and uh, yeah, love this community. So it's really cool. I didn't know that you were uh, that into music. Do you play any instruments? Or yeah, so my it was kind of like the family thing that you had to play saxophone. So my brother played. <laughs> my older brother was super good at it, and then I I came in and I started playing as well. I, I was never as good as him, but I was I was decent. And my dad had like a, a jazz band, like a swing band, like nineteen thirties, forties music. You know, oh. Glenn Miller and Tommy Dorsey and all that. So actually, that's the kind of stuff I heard in my house growing up, and we would play that out when I was like thirteen. I was about thirteen. I was playing in the band. But after that, I kind of got into guitar around 14 years old, and then piano. 
Um, and then when I went into college, I, I did voice as well. So I was like singing like opera and stuff like that. And so, yeah, I was a, I was a church music major. So I did all my kind of your music stuff and then theology stuff as well with that. And then some general ed, but yeah, music was a big part of our family and my kids have, and, and my wife was a music major too, which is where we met in, in music school at, at Bible college. And now my kids are pretty musical as well. They're into it. So it's kind of a, a family thing. Yeah, I noticed Colin plays keys uh, pretty well up there. Yeah, he's and... he's he wants to go to school for it in college. He's my oldest, and he wants to do um, aud like audio engineering production. Like he wants to produce music, and then my middle son is playing uh, guitar, and my youngest son is doing drum lessons. So, nice. which uh, I didn't see that coming, but he likes he likes to beat on the drums, I guess. So nice. I mean, that explains why the production quality is so good at Area 10, so. Yeah, I, I'm picky about it, that's for sure. I, I, you know, I'm, I haven't done worship leading in a long time, but I am pretty picky about it, and we've, we've had some great people who come, come on board and uh, want to do it well, so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the Bible verses, sing a joyful noise unto the Lord, and, you know, it's kind of hard to do that when everything's off key, so. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it could be joyful. It doesn't mean other people are going to get much joy out of it. That's you true. could have joy in your heart, I suppose. Uh, uh, cool. You mentioned uh, you briefly flirted with law before deciding on ministry, also studying music as well. What in particular just kind of got you fired up for ministry as a, as a vocation? Um, I think I come to faith, it, it was part, part head and part heart. Um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a thinker. I probably live more in my head and like to think deeply about the problems and the struggles of the world and what am I doing and all that kind of stuff. And I, I think both of my parents are from England. Okay. And I don't know what you know about the English, but they're not known as the, the warmest, most emotionally, you know, I think it's something to do with all the rain or something. It's just like... Maybe it's the bad food. Yeah, it's the rain and the bad food. They're just sort of like cold. You know, so, um, you know, I, my mom's very loving, but uh, my dad was fairly cold and he left our family when I was 11. I think I really respect people who think well. And so for me, my entrance into faith was kind of through my head first, but also through my heart. I think the church that I had grown up or I started going to in middle school, they were very loving to me as a kid with a single mom at that point and my brothers, the three of us. They were very loving to us. And uh, so I was, I was very much mentored at that point. Once my dad left the picture, I was mentored by um, some men in the church who love the Lord and, but who also were thinkers, like one of them was a doctor and he was just a very cerebral guy. And I just really resonated with that. And so I think, I think for me, that was kind of my, my, my way into ministry because I, I was like, oh, I like music. I like this church stuff. I like these people. Uh, I think I'll go do something that involves church and music. Hmm. Um, so I can keep kind of doing this thing. Cause I, you know, from middle school on, I really had a good experience in the church. You mentioned, uh, in part, like you like people who who think well. Mm -hmm. Were there any thinkers that influenced you in particular with regards to your belief, like a, a C.S. Lewis or a uh, R.C. Sproul uh, type of, I don't know. Writer? Yeah, I think um, there's certainly um, those sort some of the famous ones along the way that have. I think it started for me with just people that I knew that mm. were good thinkers, right? So. And that cared um, the senior pastor of my home church that I that I was at from middle school through high school, um, David. He 
he was just great. He was just a, a, a really solid guy. And um, I learned a ton from him and his whole family. They kind of embraced me. His, his, uh, he's got a lot of kids and they, they all kind of welcomed me as part of the family. And so, and then some of the elders of the church, I remember being in high school and this seems weird now, but like one of the elders of the church in Florida would come over my house once a week and teach me the Bible when I was like 13. And he was probably, man, he was probably about 40 years old at that time or in mid thirties. That sounds so weird now to think about a guy 40 years old going over to a teenager's house and teaching the Bible once a week. But for whatever reason, that wasn't weird. And, 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 huh. and it isn't weird, but, it, but it, it's unusual. Like you wouldn't see that now, but I really benefited from that. I'm, I, I remember, gosh, that's 30 plus years ago. I remember some of the scriptures that he taught me just coming over to my house. Like he'd show up after school, you know, I'm like, not a latchkey kid, but you know, like I'm just yeah. hanging out house watching whatever's on and he'd come over and we would read the Bible together. So people like that taking an interest in me. And then I always kind of sought that out when I got to college in Cincinnati, I had an academic advisor who was one of the music professors, just a super smart guy. And I just really latched onto him and, and he kind of had an open door policy in his office. And so I learned so much from him in four years and, and a few other professors as well. But outside of those people who took a personal interest, I think C.S. Lewis is, is an obvious one. But from uh, I think I really liked G.K. Chesterton okay. uh, and started reading Orthodoxy. It was one of those books that I would like try to read once a year. Um, I really liked the way he, he used the language and how he could turn a phrase. Hmm. And then there's a few others. Ravi Zacharias, uh, who just died this past year, he was one that I would read and listen to his teachings. Uh, really liked his stuff. Um, I got a book years ago, I think it was written in the early 90s, called Letters from a Skeptic, and it was written by Greg Boyd. Uh, he's a pastor up in Minnesota, and I just loved the way he explained things. Cause I don't know if you know that book, but it's a correspondence between him and his dad. So Greg Boyd probably at this point was a PhD in theology or whatever, but he's like maybe 40, and he's writing to his dad who's like 65, and his dad was an atheist or something. And it's just uh, it's just their letters back and forth, and they end up going through all the major issues of theology and the world and suffering and all of the things that kind of come up. And that book was really helpful to me to like sort through. Okay, why is this? Because I, I just thought Greg Boyd had a great way of explaining it. So he was another author early on that was big. And then kind of since then, I've read a lot of things Tim Keller has written and found his stuff to be really useful as well. Quite a reading list. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it's not for everybody. You know, like C.S. Lewis, you know, a lot of people love C.S. Lewis. He's like, you know, practically a saint in the Christian world today. But like, Mere Christianity is relatively an easy read. But if you read his book, like Miracles, that junk is hard to, 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 to sort through and is very challenging, you know. And so um, it's it's... It's all there. There's the accessible stuff. There's the deep stuff. And it's all like, hey, how deep do you want to go? Because this goes deeper. Which, which to me, especially in my early 20s or whatever, like that was just really helpful to know that if I get stumped, there's always more. There's always someone who's written more. There's always a deeper level to go. And not just to settle for like an easy answer or mm -hmm. like... Um, yeah, like don't throw the towel in because this is getting hard because someone's wrestled with that before and they've written about it and there's more and more you can get into. So Yeah. Being able to learn from someone else's struggles is I'd say probably one of the most important things to learn just growing up as a person in general. Cause 
if you're not learning from other people's struggles, you're going to learn from your own. Yeah. And that's no fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, talked about some theologians. What about the Bible? So for Old Testament, if, you, if someone's brand new to Christianity, just coming in, um, they're looking for something in the Old Testament to read, what do you think would be the most impactful book for someone to jump into? Man, I guess I would want to gauge sort of with the person, like, are they likely to come at things through their head or their heart? Because mm-hmm. um, if you're if you're a little more bent towards, if you're a feeler in the world, you know, or, the, or that primary for you, I mean, everybody's a feeler, but if you're, if it's a primary thing for you, I, I, I might even just say the Psalms just because they're very digestible and they express the whole range of human emotion and they are honest like brutally so if you're it's like hey there's times david seems really upset with god and there's all that so that's good because they're they're kind of easily digestible um if you want to start getting into the story though i would recommend genesis but with with a with a reservation with a qualifier i guess to say that if you get into genesis and you read through you're going to read polygamy rape uh, murder, you know, um, just some really people dressing up like prostitutes and sleeping with their dad. It's just like it's crazy stuff, yeah. crazy stuff. So if you just crack it open and, and your, and your view of the Bible is, oh, these are going to be like nice moral stories. It's like not so much, but if you want to get into it and, and like, if you want to jump right in, like jump into Genesis and within six chapters, you're going to be going, so why did why did God just wipe out the world? That sounds pretty horrible. And and why you know like why are they, so it kicks up the questions. So I would say jump into Genesis if you've got someone who can walk with you in it because yeah, yeah. stuff's gonna come up. It's oh, gonna yeah. kick up stuff. Um, but I, those those two the the very middle of the Bible Psalms and then the very beginning Genesis. I think those two are, are good ones to to get into. And just to piggyback off of that, like Genesis is. I mean, it, it's the human condition almost summarized in a very short book, right? And there's a lot of, you know, just because it's in there doesn't mean that like God is somehow approving of it. This is just kind of what happened, right? Yeah. In Judeo-Christian history. And I've heard a lot of people just say, hey, this is all myth. This is all make-believe. This yeah. is just, you know, a fairy tale. You wouldn't write a fairy tale that makes your heroes look like that. Um <laughs> That's a, yeah, that's a I great mean, point. Just looking at like uh, Jonah, actually, I was listening to some Tim Keller s- sermons on this, and he's talking about like the end chapter in the book of Jonah, where he's upset that the city he went to go preach to and saved isn't being destroyed, mm-hmm. and that's how he ends the book. Is this guy who's writing out a story is mad that God didn't wipe out this people group, mm-hmm. and so you wouldn't make your hero look like that, right? Sure, and. You can tell he repented of it because he told someone about this, wrote it down, and realized that it was wrong of him to think that way. But it's kind of like, that's not how you end the fairy tale. Oh, Samson. I mean, there's a bunch of them that are just like anti-heroes. You yeah. know, you're just like, this is a horrible person. And I remember teaching through Samson a year or two ago at our church. Uh, we did a series uh, aimed at men. And I said, all right, let's look at Samson. And, and, you know, I had to tell people, and I had people email me like, 
Chris, he was horrible. Why would you use him as an example? I'm like, well, sometimes he's an example of like the wrong thing or, or you see how God works in spite of, because a lot of us are messed up too. And when you see how God works in the guy's life in spite of all, all of these things, maybe there's something good to get out of that. But yeah, you're right. I mean, there's, there's just rough stuff in there. And that's why I like going to it because if, if people want to say now, man, let's just go to the worst thing and talk about that. Let's start there. Let's not softball. Because if people want to be like, well, why did God let, you know, this person die? And I know that's a, a very emotional question, especially if it's someone close to you. You know, we go like, oh, yeah. I lost someone. Why would God let that? But assuming someone's not saying like, why did God let my grand grandmother die or something like that? And they're just sort of saying generally like, why, why did God allow this school to get shot up or something like that? Mm-hmm. And looking at those things, which we all feel when they happen. Part of me is like, oh, it's way worse than that. Go to Genesis 6. He wipes out everybody. <laughs> like, so, so go there, figure out, learn, learn, if, learn that and understand why and understand what does it mean for God to be loving and just. Yeah. And l- get into that stuff. And, and that helps you put things that we experience here and now into a little more perspective. But uh, yeah, that's kind of my personality of like, let's just go to the best form of the argument or the worst case scenario or the whatever and look at it. Cause it like, I don't want to hide from the fact that Genesis has murder and rape in it. Like it's rough. Yeah. So don't hide from it. It's real. What can we learn by, by looking at it? I mean, and on the fundamental level, and I think this is a good way to, to segue to the gospel for a lot of people is, God curses man to die after the Garden of Eden because of Satan and him getting involved in tempting man to sin. And so as a direct result of that, God essentially is, because of his proclamation, that's why man dies, mm-hmm. right? And it's, it's the only religion in the world where not only does man die, but so does God, mm-hmm. right? In Jesus Christ, right. right? And not only does God die, he's tortured to death. Yeah. And... You know, the beauty in that is that we have a God who can sympathize with everything we go through, every hard struggle, every loss, every painful moment, right? That's that's something that God went through as well with yeah. us. And he, he can empathize and he redeems through that act as well. Yeah, that's that's really powerful because it is the universal human condition. And I, I had a, there's a group in college that we would sort of think tank group we would get together and like hash out it's one of those things you do like over pizza late night in the dorm or something we would like hash out and then we'd like write these little position papers on like here's an issue that's Mm -hmm. going on and one question we kicked around was what is the one question that every worldview is trying to answer and you can't say like a question because you know the, the candidates you might you might throw out there like well what's the origin of life you know, and, and the Bible's going to answer it one way and, and like sort yeah. of secular humanism will answer that another way. And, you know, um, Islam would answer that another way or whatever. Uh, that question doesn't work because to a Hindu mindset, the, the origin story is irrelevant. It's all circular and it's all, it just yeah. always was and always will be kind of thing. So that's not quite the right question. And the question we landed on of what is the one question that everybody in the world is looking for a worldview to answer it is um, basically what, what went wrong. Hmm. Because everybody looks at the world and thinks something's not right here. Something's broken. Yes. And I'm not, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out what it is. And, and so it could be sin, it could be, so the, yeah, a, a, 
a Judeo-Christian would say, yes, sin is in the world, and it started in the Garden of Eden, and this is why, and this is where it went wrong. This is what Jesus has done. The Christians would say, this is what Jesus has done to undo that and to fix that and to make that right. But other worldviews might say, you know, the problem in the world is ignorance or, you know, like lack of education or poverty or this is what's wrong in the world. And if we would just fix those things, then everything will be right. I, I think um, you, you have just about all of human history to show that education is not going to solve it, you know, like what's wrong with the world and, and pulling people out of poverty is great and we should work towards it, but that doesn't solve what's wrong with the world. There's plenty of crime committed by people that are educated and wealthy. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I think that, and, and, and to your point, this is where the gospel is so powerful because, you know, the, the world is broken for sure. And really the whole Old Testament kind of details that for you of here's how broken the ancient world was. And then Christ enters the scene to, to say, I'm going to, I'm going to experience that brokenness as well. I'm going to become one of you and experience that. And in so doing, we'll start to undo that and become a, a sacrifice for sin and all that so that we can be made right. So we can, it's God's elegant solution. I remember a professor saying, uh, man is sinful. God is loving and just. How can God, but how's God going to be loving and just? Yeah. If he's so loving, he doesn't punish. He's not just. If he's so justice focused and is punishing, he may yeah. not be loving, right? Yeah. So, so the cross is this elegant solution of there's punishment, but there's also love and mercy and grace. So it's kind of a cool thing. I like that. That a lot. Now, this is kind of an awkward segue, but with all that context, so you work to start up this church. What do you see the church's role in that mission that Christ started? Yeah, so the church, I, I like to remind people, the church was Jesus' idea and not ours. And so anything we do is about him, not about us, right? That's why when you see some groups around around the city here, we'll see, you know, you see a, something that calls itself a church. Mm but they're not really into Jesus. I'm like, that's not a church. Like it, it could be a gathering. It could be a gathering of people who like to do good things or a gathering of nice people or something. I don't know, but it's not a church. A church is Jesus's idea in, in Matthew 16, where you know, I'm going to, I'm going to build my church. And so I see us, I see the church as uh, an expression of God's kingdom on earth, that Jesus was the king that's a little hard for us as Americans because we, we sort of don't like kings. We don't get into that. We were sort of founded as a country on we're not going to do that. So the idea of kingdom feels dated to us. It feels sort of fairy tale-ish, sort of, yeah. you know, Middle Earth, that kind of stuff. Or like a Disney kind of. Yeah, it's very, you're right. You know, it's totally it's Disney-fied like, or whatever. But but in the ancient world, that that kind of language makes a lot of sense. And I think the, the gospel is that, that Christ has come and he's taken people who were enemies and made them... Uh, friends of God, adopted them into the family, made them a family of God, and, and that he's the, the ruling king. And so the church then becomes an expression of that kingdom here on earth. And so we see it as our mission to uh, let people know the good news that you have been alienated from God, but that he, he's, he's brought you back into the family um, through Christ and, and, and challenging people to accept Christ and, and, and to be part of that and then start building the kingdom. It's actually interesting if we're going to go current events here. Yeah, totally. This is the week. I don't know when you're going to release this, but this is the week that Amy Barrett Coney uh, is a potential Supreme Court nominee for that Trump is about to 
potentially nominate. She's on the short list of nominees. Oh, on Saturday, yeah. He's yeah, supposed yeah. To so he's, he's, supposed to, he's supposed to say who he's going to be. But a lot of people are pointing to her, and they did when Kavanaugh was announced as well. They thought she might be the one. Hmm. Um, but she said this week that she sees her job as ultimately about advancing the kingdom of God. And people in sort of the political world in America freaked the heck out because they were just like, this isn't a theocracy and, you know, what is she saying? All that kind of stuff. And, and I just thought when I heard that, I was like, oh, you, you clearly have never heard a real Christian talk because this is what we all, I mean, ultimately, unless you're just playing Christianity, unless you're just sort of like, I go to church and it's nice and I just want to be nice and meet nice people and, and kind of love or whatever. And grab a donut after. Yeah, yeah, right, whatever. If, if you're doing that thing, then maybe, and if that's your experience of Christianity, then maybe what she said doesn't make sense. But, but I think for anybody who takes their faith seriously and really digs into the Gospels and digs into what Jesus is about, yes, we are all here, no matter what job we have, no matter what vocation, like whatever we're doing, we're all here to advance the kingdom of God. That's what it's about. So when she said that, people go to, uh, as they do, they sort of catastrophize and they go to the worst possible and they think she's going to, and I'm like, she's, she's Catholic, as are like six of the Supreme Court judges, so justices. So it's not like so crazy that she's Catholic or whatever. But she's just saying like, hey, whatever I do, first and foremost, I'm here to advance the kingdom of God. And I, and I think that's what the church should be about. I think that's what all believers should be about. Like that's, 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 right. that's what we're in. Like this is what we're doing. I, th- I would say that a lot of the problems we have in this world right now, also specifically this country, are because the church in certain areas has failed to advance those kingdom values. And it's something I talked about with a friend of mine a couple of weeks ago who goes to the church as well. Um, but we were talking about how there's all these institutions of higher learning and health and all this other stuff where it's like every university was pretty much founded by some sort of church group, every yeah. hospital yeah. for the most part too. Yeah. And same thing with like public schools and like food assistance programs like SNAP. All these things started by the church. And then slowly but surely, you know, well-intentioned people handed these projects off to the government. And then the government just decided, eh, you know, that's not profitable. We don't like doing that. We're going to streamline this. And it just kind of, all these things started falling apart. And now people are like, we want to get the government back into it. And we're going to, and they'll fix it. And it's like, no, 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 no. They, They broke it. We need, we need to get the church back involved in these things to, yeah. to fix them, right? Because that's where they came from. Uh, and they, they started these things when they only had, like, pen and paper, right? They didn't even have the internet. Yeah. And they only had, like, horses, right? Yeah. It was crazy. Yeah. And we've got all, like, the best tools. And we're like, ah, I don't think that's too hard. I don't know if we can do that. <laughs> yeah, uh, you, you're right. And so those, and, you know, those are, those are expressions, all those things, medicine and education, all those things are expressions of the kingdom of how Christians have tried to live out their faith. I'll never forget this. About eight years ago, I went to a social enterprise conference at the Harvard Business School. So I was up in Boston and I'm sitting there. It was really interesting. It's a bunch of people who were doing business, you know, trying to build great businesses, Mm -hmm. but they were trying to figure out how to do social good with them. So think like Tom's shoes back in his early days, like Blake Mykoski and all that. Like how do we leverage the money-making thing of business, but then also do good with it. It was a cool conference. And, and I remember sitting there in a, you know, you're in the room waiting for this lecture to start and you start chatting with people around you. And this person's like from the Clinton foundation, this person like was for Stanford and like, you got really mm. bright people in the room. 
And there was one woman sitting next to me who was a student at Harvard. She was in the business school. And we started talking. And, and this, this, this particular lecture we were about to hear was about um, human trafficking and what was going on in the world and all that. And so uh, I find out she's from the Harvard Business School. And then she says, you know, what are you, who are you here with or what are you here with? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm part of a church in, in Richmond. And so I'm, I'm just kind of here to learn, you know, what people are doing. And I'll never forget, like, how she looked at me and how she, and like how it was like I, you know, like it, I had just committed this social faux pas of like, you're from the church. She thought she thought I was like crazy. And she was basically like, wait, why? Why are you here? Like you're your church. And I, and I was sitting there thinking like, yo, we started this like this is a, <laughs> we, we've been in this game a long time. We've been having these conversations for like you know, millennia now. And I know the business world is like trying to do something to like catch up, but like, Hey, we've, we've been at this a, uh, and, and been into this for a long time because I, I know the history of, you know, and I'm like, yo, you're at Harvard. Do you know how Harvard was founded? Do you know what it was for? Do you know, like it was to train up ministers. Like that was the point of the school and you're, you're living in it and you don't understand what it came from. You know, that the, yeah. the them and uh, uh, William and Mary, just an hour away from here, which those two argue about which is the oldest school in America. But William and Mary, same thing. And its charter is it's it was to raise up ministers to preach the gospel to people in Virginia, you know, indigenous peoples and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. uh, I think I, I think I read like 101 out of the first 130 universities in the U.S. University of Chicago, all these places were founded by Christians for Christian purposes to expand the kingdom of God. So like. Just in education, the example yeah. you gave, there's a ton of that. I mean, medicine's got a ton of it. Like the first hospital, I believe, was actually ever right. For, yeah, for poor people was yeah was uh, Christian. I think it was in Rome too. Yeah, the Roman Empire. There's loads of that. Christians uh, starting medical things, um, even ones that are modern. Um, bon Secours, which is a big healthcare network here in Virginia, and we got several Bon Secours hospitals here. Bon Secours is, uh, I guess, the French like good help. And it was started by Christians in Paris in like the 1700s where they were like, hey, it was like nuns or something. And they're like, let's go door to door and find out if there's any sick people so we can help them. Well, they don't just do that because they love sick, help sick people. This was motivated by the gospel, motivated by Jesus. And so even something that we have modern, you know, this thing that we've now inherited, this good help thing uh, came from Christian people trying to trying yeah. to. Spread the gospel, yes. Expand the kingdom, yeah. And, and they were trying to practically help their neighbors, you know. So yeah. uh, I think it's a, a a beautiful thing. But it's it's weird now how. Uh, so Dallas Willard, I, I probably should have mentioned him as maybe one of my favorite authors over the years, probably from about the year two thousand two on. Reading his stuff has been so influential. And so his, his stuff about kingdom, uh, the divine conspiracy about what Jesus is doing in the kingdom of God, that was really helpful for me. And lately, I've, I've, I've listened to Mark Sayers a lot who, who talks about the kingdom without a king. And so, so much of the Western world right now is trying to still do the kingdom. Hmm. St- it's, it's an effect trying to, trying to spread the kingdom of God without having a king at all. Yeah. Like, no Jesus, but we do love the part where you help people, you love people, you educate people, you all these things that the kingdom work has been doing for the last 2,000 years. Now we're trying to do it without a king. Um, you, you know, uh, I heard, uh, I think I heard Jordan Peterson talk, and he said, 
he was debating someone in this, this, it was a debate between him and this, this woman, they were talking about, um, you know, is Christianity or is religion a good force in the world? Mm. And she basically said, if you look at the, the best countries in the world from all your social standing stuff, they're non-religious countries. If you look at the worst countries in the world, they're religious, like your, your Islamic government, stuff like that. And he said, and I thought this was a great point, he said, the best countries in the world that you're talking about, you're, you know, Sweden or whatever, yeah. he said, the reason they are the way they are is they're basically living off of the corpse of Christianity and they're sucking it dry. Like, they are the way they are because Christianity was there. They may not be Christian right now and they may not be acknowledging the king. He didn't say it in these terms, but yeah. they may not be acknowledging the king, but they are still living under those kingdom values. And what I think is interesting is, I see this in a lot of societies, but especially our own, is without the king, I feel like you lose a lot of grace. Yeah. Um, grace towards one another. Yeah. And I've seen that a lot, especially in this country, where we, have, we are heading towards a more secular society. And in that, in that move, we're losing the ability to forgive each other and to love our neighbors and to reason frankly with our neighbors and to have that civil discourse just because we're not... It just feels like we're maybe looking for points or social standing by tearing each other down. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like woke culture or cancel culture is there's no way for you to ever come back if you make a mistake. If you weren't progressive enough, if you didn't say the right thing at the right time, if you didn't you know, put this uh, tag on your Facebook page or mm -hmm. whatever, mm -hmm. uh, you get canceled. And you know, there's no way back, right? They don't have a mechanism for forgiveness. They don't have sure. a mechanism for grace. Um, yes. one, of the, one of the benefits I think for Christianity is that we were, we were canceled probably in like the eighties. And so we're uncancelable, right? It's just like, yeah. we, we've been canceled for, you know, over you know, three decades now, yeah. right? In, in mainstream media, I think the most positive Christian character still in mass media is Ned Flanders. Yeah. And I can't think of any other positive Christian image mm -hmm. uh, within, like mass. Maybe like I guess on like a, like a cop's TV show like Blue Bloods or something like that. That there might be a Christian character. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, no, there's there's not much representation there. That's that's a good point. I think I think the similarities, right now in our culture with what you're seeing with like, what, you, what you're calling like woke culture, progressivism is like it's not like the ends that they're trying to achieve aren't some good ends in many yeah. cases like a a more just society and that people have a have a, a seat at the table that everyone gets to see the table that 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 uh that we're building the most fair system that we can like mm -hmm. those are those are good things but the the means to those ends almost seem like ancient religion like they're super legalistic with no means of grace no yeah. like it's just like Hey, if you step out of line, you get you get killed or canceled. You get shunned. Yeah. You, you get it, shunned. Yeah, you get you get thrown out of the society if you use the wrong word. I mean, if you you get you, you're going to lose your job, you're going to lose your place, you're going to lose everything you've built is going to be canceled, shunned, and it's like this is what happens when you try to pursue noble ends to pursue some maybe some good things. You try to build the kingdom, but you have no acknowledgement of the king. There's no North Star. There's no aligning thing for us. It's all just, hey, we all agree some good things to hap need to happen, and it's fair game, whatever means we want to do to get there, and let's all disagree about what that means is, and let's just, you know, 
kind of tear each other down. Yeah, it's like a religion where the rules change all the time and no one's written anything down. It's like yeah. there's a card game called Mal. Have you ever heard of it? Mm -mm. So it's, a, it's, it's played with a, a deck of cards and everybody uh, gets dealt, I think, seven cards and only one person knows the rule, the rules. And um, if you ask about the rules, you uh, get a punishment by you get dealt another card. If okay. you talk out of turn, you get another card. If you, yeah. I mean, there's all these weird rules, like, and if you break any of them, the guy who knows the rules, he gives you an extra card. And so, and not only that, but the person who wins, they get to make up a new rule that they don't have to tell anybody. Oh, wow. So it's an inherently unfair game that, and it, it, I've played it before. Well, the first time I played it, it was infuriating. And that's how I feel when I look at, I get that same feeling of, uh, I want to say like anger when I, I see someone who wasn't progressive enough with a good heart, just getting slammed on social media or sure. whatever, just because, uh, you know, you're, you're out of fashion now or yeah. you said the wrong thing or you didn't say the thing when you should have said the thing yeah. or yeah, it's, it's horrible. It's, it's, it's graceless right now. And I, I've watched people get canceled, you know, or, or just removed from roles, leadership. I've experienced a, a, a piece of it myself. You know, mm -hmm. I've experienced the rejection from groups of people because I didn't say it the way they wanted it. Or, you know, I didn't land in exactly the nuanced version of how they want me to land. And Man, it, uh, it, that stuff's pretty toxic in our, our culture, um, the total lack of grace. You know, one of my, uh, a book I really enjoyed over the last decade or two is uh, Philip Yancey's What's So Amazing About Grace. Hmm. And then Brandon Manning's The Ragamuffin Gospel. Those two books are maybe some of the best grace books out there. And, and Philip Yancey's like, he, he really says, like, this is what is needed in the world. Hmm. Like, it's so important without that grace if we're not, if we no longer extend grace to people, um, that's, that goes down a very dark path yeah. historically when, when you don't have grace. I think our country is too big to exist without grace at this point. Yeah. Well, I, I was hoping to switch topics a bit sure. and, and talk kind of a bit more about, we, we talked briefly about higher education, uh, the ways that churches engage with the community and, mm -hmm. uh, make a difference. Uh, I know that area 10 has some different things that they try to do to encourage community engagement. I know that you guys are really involved with foster uh, parents and supporting foster parents. Mm -hmm. um, I know that you guys, I'm sure you guys have some other programs like that. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about? Or maybe we can talk about like the foster care thing. Like why do you, what drives you guys to engage with that specifically? Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. So for our church, we, uh, we try to engage the city in some practical ways like churches have always done, like, like, you know, healthcare, education, all this stuff. And you, you sort of look around at the culture and you go like, what's broken and what could, where could we, where could we jump in? So, but you, you only have a limited amount of time and resources and people and energy and whatever. So you can't do everything. Yeah. Uh, for us, we gravitated towards foster care for my wife and I, we, we became foster parents in 2011. Um, and as we were getting involved in that at, you know, sort of the church did as well. And so we, we, we kind of, uh, became, we were trying to become a leading voice to, to, to help with foster care and adoption in, uh, in Virginia, because we felt like that's such a, a gospel thing that, that you would, you know, it, it, 
Galatians describes us as being adopted into the family of God. Hmm. That Jesus is the natural born son, and then we are all in through ado- adoption. Through yeah. you know, with with he's the biological kid, and we get to go in through adoption. So, I think that's such a, a cool gospel picture. Anyway, but also when you deal with adoption and foster care, you're going to touch on a lot of the other issues in society. Oftentimes, you'll you'll be adopting or, or fostering trans transracially, right? So you're going to have race issues that you're going to have to address. You, you've got uh, poverty, you've got drug addiction, you've got incarceration, like all of this stuff, uh, prostitution, all of this stuff. Uh, a lot of those things are sort of downstream issues and the upstream thing is is adoption and, and kids yeah. being in the foster care system and not getting a, a, a forever family. Yeah. So that seemed like a really strategic one for our church to get into because it, it was a place to get in there and then uh, once you do that, you're 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 touching on a whole bunch of other issues. But we've also done some other things um, uh, with some. We work with uh, some poor neighborhoods, like uh, some of the housing projects. Uh, we, we we support some ministries that are doing work in housing project neighborhoods. Uh, there's a lot of struggle and grief and pain, uh, and so we're we're trying to come alongside some ministries there. We've done some different stuff with uh, food scarcity. We've done uh, different projects where we're trying to come alongside the public schools to do um, to support education better. We just feel like the better we can make Richmond, it, it becomes sort of that rising tide that raises all the boats kind of thing. It's it's. Um, uh, I, I was really motivated by. Um, the Jeremiah passage, Jeremiah 29, where he says, seek the welfare of the city to which I have sent you. Hmm. Seek the shalom, the peace of the city. And these are this is written to people living in exile, Jews who are pulled out of Jerusalem, out of their home, and they go live in Babylon, which they hate. Yeah. And rather than just like hate it and then just sit, sit down and die, God says to them, no, make Babylon great. And as you do, as it gets great, it's going to be good for you too. Yeah. And so... And he tells them, he specifically tells people, have children, plant gardens, have houses. And, and, you, and you sort of wonder how hopeless were they where they thought about not doing all of those things. They're like, I, I hate Babylon so much, I'm not even going to have kids anymore. Like, Still we're just going to die. We're yeah. going to crawl up and die here. And God had to remind them, I know this seems bad, and I know you hate the language, culture, and the people of, that you're living with. But you need to invest in that city and make it better because as it gets better, it'll be better for you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, a cool picture of what kingdom work looks like for the church now is, Hey, you're in this place and you may be different than it culturally. Like the values of the church may be different than the mainstream values in our case of Richmond, the whole city. But what would it look like to make it better, to look around, look at things that are broken and try to try to invest because as it gets better, it's better for everybody here. Like, so yeah. that's, that feels like good kingdom work, and so that's why our churches tried to be involved in that stuff. Nice. It's hard, though. It's hard, yeah. exhausting at times, but but good work. I believe that. I've always thought that the best way to make any society better is just to try to bring more people towards Christ, and then kind of like letting the, uh, I would say that the fruit of the Holy Spirit kind of just pour out from them. Yeah. So the more people that we can bring towards Christ and uh, bring into his kingdom and call to his kingdom, the better the world around us will get just naturally on its own. Yep. It's kind of like called salt and light. You know, salt is like a preserving agent, right? And so if we're on this, you know, let's say rotting culture, the more salt you have, the, the longer it's going to last, mm-hmm. the better it might be. Mm-hmm. So I think, that's uh, a, I think that's an important distinction you're making too because we are called 
really the church is not called to do adoption foster care ultimately. That's like we do that, yes. Uh, it's not called to make the school systems better. Yeah, we want to jump in and tutor and, and do what we can. All that is true. But ultimately, the commission from Jesus to followers of Jesus is to be disciples who make disciples. And so what it's about for us is, is helping people to know God through Jesus and to spend eternity with him, that we actually think that there's heaven or hell on the line, that those places are real. Hmm. And so the mission of the church is to, to help people become part of the kingdom and, and ultimately that ends in heaven and not stay on the road to hell. So that's an important distinction to make because when a church forgets that that, that is its ultimate mission, churches become social good institutions yeah. and they just... They, they focus entirely on, we're just going to run a soup kitchen or whatever, and they, they forget the ultimate purpose. And I heard someone say, um, the church doesn't exist just to give people a nicer road to hell. Hmm. Like, we're not just trying to make society nicer so that it's nicer. Yeah, um, yeah we want to we pour into Babylon and make it a better place and all that. But it's ultimately so that people will know God and be reconciled to God. It ultimately goes back to the sin problem of the world and how do we reconcile that and what has Jesus done for us? That's, that's the big picture. Yeah. It's almost like it's, it's convenient for us because it's like we're wearing our ulterior motive on our sleeve, yeah. right? We're not, yeah, we're, you know, we're here to, you know, help distribute lunches. Right. But really we're here because we want to show you that the church cares and, yeah. you know, and this is, and if we can do a presentation of the gospel, yeah, right. Cause otherwise it's just, you know, if if we can't represent Christ there, it's like why even bother showing up? To be honest, I'm, yeah. I'm a little and I, I'm, pessimistic. I, I've sort of swung the pendulum a little bit in my own life, and it's one of the things I appreciate you about about the work you do and 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 how you're approaching it is probably in about the year 2000 to about 2008, maybe maybe mid 90s to 2008. There became this vibe in churches in the West, in America, I'll say, and and then it, in Europe, I guess a bit. There was this vibe of like, you know, uh, I'm going to just be cool and we're going to make cool music and we're going to we're going to uh, we're going to connect to the culture that way. We're going to do church in a bar and we're going to do, you know, all of this, this kind of thing of like, let's get outside the church building. Let's go. Let's go to the bar and have beer. And then we're going to we're going to do some cool music and we're going to we're not going to do Christian music, but we are Christians and we write music. And there's this whole vibe that was going on uh, in, in the Christian world in the West, I think. Um and like at the end of the day, I don't know that that really got us much. I, and I think it ended up, I think a lot of people walked away from their faith during all of that cool vibe thing. They were like, let me just keep the cool vibe and not the Christian thing. <laughs> and not that Christianity was ever extremely cool or anything, but like, but they, there was an effort made there. Yeah. And what I appreciate maybe about the approach you're taking or that others are taking now is I think we can like you say, wear it on our sleeve. I think we can drop a little of the pretense and just go like, wait, do you have an ulterior motive where, where you're trying to help our school because you want me to come to know Jesus and just be like, yes, I absolutely want you to come to know Jesus because I actually think it's the ultimate problem here. Yeah. It, 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 is, it is the solution. And I would defend that and hold that up and say, look, we may have different views about the problem and the solution, but I'm going to put mine out there and say, your your lack of connection to God is is your poverty. It is the it is the worst thing, yeah. and we want to help you with that. Also, 
affordable housing and all these other things. Yeah, we want to do those things, but but let's just let's just come out and say it because we tried to like sneak it in there in our little like Christian coffee shop or whatever. It's like no, just be honest and just yeah. say this is what it is. And it's it's funny because that's this isn't the first time I think we've done that like culturally, not even just in America, but it's like that's why that's what happened to all of our universities. It's like oh yeah, we'll keep doing the Christian thing, but we're also going to be all about education now. And then it's yeah. like, and then we'll we'll. We've got a good. Let's build out a good football program. Yeah. And let's let's build out a good you know business school too. And uh, maybe we can take some money from the the theology training program. Yeah. We don't. We, nobody signed up for that anyway. Let's just close it out. You know who Man. needs that, right? So that's so funny you say that. It's funny you say that because the college that I went to yeah was founded in 1924, I think, and I was there from 94 to 98. And this January 1st, it closed. And when you trace back, why did the college close? When I was there in the 90s, it, it very much felt like a ministry training school. Mm-hmm. But between the mid-90s and this past year, it was like, well, but then we're also this, and then we're this, and then we're this. And there's like financial stuff there, and there's challenges that they faced and whatever. But I remember that they got a football program a couple of years before it closed. And they were like, well, this might be our new way forward is we do this athletic thing, and we're going to get athletes coming in and whatever and it and it ceased to be a ministry training school and just like that vision drift yeah over time and then the school closes and you're like well yeah that's that's what's going to happen is if you you get off of why you're there you lose that you lose that mission yeah yeah god kind of removing the lampstand as it were <laughs> yeah he blew out someone he blew, he blew out the candle on the way out uh, yeah so yeah, we've talked about, I would say, ministries and uh, programs and uh, your church and, you know, kind of its mission. How do you envision things moving forward with uh, COVID-19? How has that affected the church? And, uh, yeah, I don't know, just any thoughts on that, feelings? One of the things I've thought a lot about, really since 2014, I think, is when I first heard about this, is the concept concept of something being anti-fragile to uh nassim taleb's book anti-fragile which i'm actually i've known about it for years but i'm actually only reading it now he he said there are things that benefit from having stress put on them Hmm. and they actually grow stronger you know you you would call something fragile if you add stress to it and it breaks so you know a porcelain thing you add pressure to that it'll break but we don't have a word in english for the opposite of that not that when you add pressure to it, it doesn't break. That's We have a word for that. That's robust or resilient, resilient or something. Yeah. But what what does it look like if you add pressure to something and it gets stronger? Hmm. And when I first heard that concept, probably 2014, 15, somewhere in there, I thought, oh, that's the church. The church historically, when you add pressure to it, it grows stronger. Roman Empire early on, hmm. you saw that, you know, people being martyred for their faith and the church grows from, you know, dozens maybe a hundred thousands followers of jesus to 33 million over in about 300 years so that was in part through pressure um rodney stark in his book the rise of christianity points to how the plagues helped grow the church Hmm. and you go like plague like the black plague like that like how does that grow the church and he kind of traces it out not from a spiritual perspective but like as a sociologist he sort of Hmm. goes here's what happened here's why and and so You've learned you learn that in the history of the church, like when pressure comes, the church eventually adapts and gets stronger. And I and I'm I'm hopeful that COVID is that kind of thing. 
it's a, a a plague for our time that that helps the church grow stronger. Now, in the middle of it, I don't have the clearest like this, and this is exactly how that's going to happen. But I, I do think what has happened is that it has served to maybe separate out some people who were hanging on to Christianity just from a cultural sort of way, like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian, just like I have a membership at a, uh, I'm also a member at the Y, and I have, you know, like, it was just one more thing. Yeah, I also dropped my kids off at this daycare on Sunday morning. Sure, yeah, yeah, sure. So, (laughs) right, and so, uh, you know, for a lot of people, I think Christianity in America has been just one more piece of a successful middle-class life. Yeah. Like, okay, you have that too, and that's fine. And I wonder if, if what we'll see here in COVID is that, that it, it, it'll be like the wind that sort of blew the seeds away hmm. in, in Jesus' parable, that, 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 that there's people who they're, they're, they're not going to come back to church, faith. They're, um, between, and not just COVID, like the whole cultural thing going on right now, whether hmm. it's COVID or politics or um, you know, some of the, the racial challenges in our country in the last couple months, um, some combination of all these things, maybe, um, seeing religious people in public positions behave very badly. Um, there's definitely that, you know, a combination of all these factors I think is sifting some people. Hmm. And so, uh, how does that project for the church going forward? That's like the million dollar question. I was, I was with a group of pastors last week and we're all sort of scratching our heads, but I do believe that the church is anti-fragile and I do believe that something good will come out of this. Cause you see it, you know, where has Christianity grown the most in the last 20 years, China and India, hmm. which is two places. It was maybe most persecuted. Yeah. So um, still persecuted still. Yes, yeah, it's still, and, and, and maybe the rate of growth has slowed down a bit in those places, but Christianity is the strongest now in the global South and in the East, not in the West. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and it has grown and thrived in places where there's pressure. And so maybe what's happening to the church through COVID and other things in the West is that God is, is, has brought some pressure and that's going to help the church move forward and, and carve a new path because maybe we got really comfortable in the way things were. I, I had a friend say it to me this way, like, cause I, I was actually teaching last Sunday on the great commission and a pastor friend of mine said, um, I think we, and I think in the church, we settled for the mediocre commission. We were like, cool with that. Like we're not really obeying everything Jesus commanded and making disciples, but we do have some people who are showing up and that's nice. So we'll just do that. And it's like, yeah, sure. As long as your graphs are going up and to the right, you don't question it. You just go, it's growing. It's going fine. And maybe what's happening right now is that we're, we're going, yeah, but are we really making disciples? We're going to have to do better with that. Yeah. So that's where my heart and my energy is, is how do we make disciples? That's what I'm thinking about going forward. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely something that's on my heart quite a bit too. Yeah. Don't want to live out the mediocre commission. Yeah. It's funny. It, I like that phrase. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to steal that from you. What, the mediocre commission? The mediocre commission. Yeah, I sold it for someone else. So. Oh, nice. I don't, you don't have to answer this. I, I saw your, your chat with uh, that uh, African-American pastor mm. uh, regarding the whole BLM movement mm-hmm. in the country. It seems to have devolved in some interesting ways. I Honestly, not unexpected. The, the real lack of leadership within the organization. It's like, I don't know. I don't even know what you do about that. Um, but... A lot of discourses devolved. 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's predictable now, you know. If you start even with noble, noble intent, it gets dragged down so easily now with the influx of social media and all that. So. Yeah, and it just seemed like there was no real conversation. Um, I don't know if you saw up the street, but there's a lot of graffiti on one of the shops that was boarded up and closed um, that said, we need to talk Yeah. with BLM, yeah. hashtag underneath it. And I was kind of like, yeah, you know, let's talk. And there's no forum, right? Yeah. And it's also, you're not allowed to disagree. And so it's like, that's not talking. That's just, yeah. you know. We need to talk and, and we don't even know how. Yeah. Like that's, that's kind of where we're at. It's like, before we can have whatever conversation you want to have, let's talk about how we have conversations. Yeah. Because we've like, we've forgotten that. If our conversations are in 280 characters or less on Twitter. Yeah. That's what we're... Well, our whole, I feel like our whole culture has forgotten how to have a conversation where somebody disagrees with you or has a slightly different view than you yeah. and you can kind of work it out where you can, you know, meet in the middle somewhere or you can change your mind yeah. or, you know, God forbid they can change their mind. It's, it's just not done these days. It's almost seen as like a form of weakness and I don't, I don't know what to do about that. Right? Yeah. I think it's a, I think that's a, almost like a religious, I say like a religious problem. Like a spirit, it is a spiritual problem in, in a sense because I think my read on this and other people are writing about this and can say it way better than me. But what what I'm seeing is that when you you, you say Christianity got how did you say it like sort of got uh, canceled back in the 80s, and really in the U.S. church attendance, if you're going to count that, hmm. was the highest in like the 1950s 60s in the history of the country. It was big then. Yeah. So then in the 80s it gets like cancel and and maybe deservedly so with like the moral majority and things that kind of yeah, came out of there. I, like I get that, but I, I think that where we are now with that is that um, I think what has happened after you canceled Christianity, whenever that's happened, last couple decades or whatever, or or it's become much less popular or whatever, is that you've you've taken away something. That for a lot of people provided meaning and structure to life, what life is about. And you've replaced it with a void of nothing. Like, and, and not just Christianity. If you remove all religious thought from public life, all religious systems, what are you replacing that with? Because the, the sort of the mainstream secular humanist it just doesn't give you great answers on the big questions. It gives you some interesting answers on little questions on, on, on how does this work in science or whatever. But like yeah. questions about meaning and purpose and all the, that kind of stuff does not get answered well. And so once you take all that away from a society, I think people end up just sort of grasping at straws. Like, like so for example, one of the reasons I think people are so, seem so politically charged right now is because Religion is gone and politics has taken its place because everybody wants to be part of something bigger than themselves. Everybody wants to be part of something that's meaningful. Hmm. And if and if Christianity or religion is no longer meaningful, we will make politics meaningful. We will make it everything. And I would love to go back to a time where politics just didn't matter that much, that it, that we could elect a president and it wasn't the end of the world, yeah. the most important election of our lifetime, the the best or the worst thing that could ever happen. The people who are saying these things are, for the most part, people who have left things that actually did matter or like they've torn down all the things like the things that did give our lives meaning, things like religion. 
So I, I think our lack of a, the ability to have a good dialogue stems from that problem. We have, we have made secondary things primary things. We've, we've, we've hmm. said politics is everything. And, and now, if you disagree with me on my political view, that's a religious problem for me. Like, you've, you, you're insulting my religion. You've just insulted it's my God. My character. Like, oh, it's, it's who I am. I am my beliefs. I am my belief. Yeah, yeah, well put. Yeah, 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 I am my beliefs. And now you've... Now you've and, and so I am threatened when you disagree with me. That's why your speech is violence to me because you are attacking oh. my, you know, how often do you hear like you're you're um, well you're, you're 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 denying my right to exist. I'm like that's not even possible. You you can exist if you want. Like no one's denying like. But yeah. when we when you hear that kind of language, you know, oh something is threatened here that that people have made it, it's an identity piece for them. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's definitely accurate. Just to piggyback off of that, I, I just I just think so much of um, a political discourse almost, almost does have that kind of religious, you know, quality to it. You know, I, I, I kind of get it though too, right? Is it's like people are they they see the civil rights movement and they're like, I wish that I could have marched with Martin Luther King. Sure. So maybe this is my time. This is my thing. I can go do this. And the only problem is that you know, talking to a lot of people at these rallies. You know, they all want different things, mm -hmm. and they're not entirely sure how to get there. Mm -hmm. And you know, any any suggestion that you know maybe we, we're not going to be able to legislate our way out of this is uh, is terrifying to them, right? And it, it's really sad, just because it's you know, if you, if you talk to any you know historian or uh, somebody who studied political science and, and history, you know, you can talk about the executive branch, and you can be like. Was is the executive branch functioning as intended, right? Is the president does he have as much power as he was supposed to have when we wrote mm -hmm. the Constitution? Mm -hmm. And is 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 that branch of the government functioning? Mm -hmm. Not so much. Mm -hmm. Okay, then you talk to any like lawyer or judge, and it's like, how's the judicial branch doing? Is that functioning well? Not really, right? Yeah. Then, okay, well, what about Congress, the legislative branch? Is that working well? It's like no, and. And the fourth estate, right, which is, you know, the media, media. Yeah, sure. how's, how's that doing? Is, it, yeah. is that healthy and, you know, running all, all cylinders? It's like not, not even close. So it's like, so you think that an election is going to fix any of these things? Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, no, no, no. We're, yeah. we're, we're in some trouble, like as, as a country, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't, I, I'm going to vote. I don't think my vote is going to fix anything, though. And I, I, I'm jealous of the naive optimism that that people who think that an election is going to fix this country reality is that society is made up of people and individuals and individuals need to change and make the world a better place it's yeah. not going to be it's not going to be you know your vote in the ballot box it's going to be how you live your life in your neighborhood and treat the people around you yeah and treat people at work and treat the homeless guy down the street and people that are living in, I don't know, projects near your house. Mm -hmm. or, and the only way I've ever seen anyone change is through a real interaction with God, where mm -hmm. they do business with God, where they, they, uh, they experience His grace, and that empowers them to start showing grace in their mm -hmm. own lives. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, it's like uh, your gram grandmother always said, you know, y'all need Jesus, right? That's <laughs> still true. Still true. 
Grandma was right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I'm really curious about one of the things I've been thinking and wondering how to, how to speak up about it is, is what's about to happen with the U.S. election. Because what I think might happen, and everyone's sort of trying to read the tea leaves, and I see where they're like, oh, the polls have Biden up by nine percentage points in Florida or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, I, I remember what those polls said about that Hillary was going to win also. Yeah. So in 2016, so I think those polls have lost credibility, or they should have with, yeah. you know, so what I'm, what I'm curious about right now is obviously who, who's going to win that election, but, but the thing I, I keep thinking about is, I, I can't predict the future, but it's, it's possible that we could go either way with this. I'd say it's possible that Trump wins in a landslide, like it's not close. Yeah. And I think it's also possible that, that Biden could do the same. Yeah. It, what I want to talk about, or what I want people to consider is, if that happens, so if, if Trump wins in a landslide and you didn't vote for Trump, the important thing is what do you think about your country and what do you think about all the people that did? Because they're your neighbors. Yeah. And it would probably be better for all of us if you didn't hate all those people. And you didn't, you know, like we would probably have a better society. And no matter who gets elected, if we can learn, recover what it's like to look at people charitably and assume positive intent and that kind of stuff. That's the conversation I want to have because I think as a pastor looking at my own congregation, just people I know in the city, there's about to be some people really disappointed. Yeah. And I remember in 2016 watching people in tears because Trump got elected. I remember as a pastor having people in my congregation in tears and then having other people being like, oh, man, Trump won. God is so good. And I'm like, I can't believe you all in the same church in the same like it's uh. it's challenging. Right. And so I'm I'm really interested to see and wondering right now how as a church, how can we help people process whatever is about to happen? Because. People are going to freak the heck out. And let's be honest, most likely scenario is that it's a close race. Mm. And we don't know who won for a few days. Weeks. Weeks, at least. Yeah. Yeah. yeah a few days don't. at least, right? Yeah. And so... And that's the worst scenario, I think. And, you know, we've got... You know, we live in Virginia where they have open carry and people are you know, really happy about that for some reason. Yeah. Um, which... It's a thing. Hey, Second Amendment. Love it. Well, it's yeah. great. There to protect the First Amendment, I think. Um, but really, I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about what's going to happen with things as tense as they are with, mm-hmm. with race and the economy mm-hmm. and a pandemic mm-hmm. and, and now this election. And, you know, I, I, I have a, a cybersecurity certification that's, that's pretty hard to get. It actually just in the EU got congratulations. It got a status as right. a the equivalent of a master's degree oh, in cool. IT security and, okay. and you know, hacking and all that kind of other stuff. And um, essentially, in my non-professional opinion, I wouldn't be surprised if there were like our infrastructure, our voting infrastructure is not secure. It's not as secure as people want to admit that it is. Sure. And I don't know if yeah, I, I this is a little bit conspiracy theory ish, but like. I'm pretty sure that there was some, like, there's been acknowledged some voter interference in the 2016 election. Sure. I'm pretty sure that there was actual interference as well. Like, yeah, sure. there was a hackathon done a couple months after the election that showed that amateur hackers could breach just about every single voting machine within, like, 15 minutes. And a few days before the election, 
I don't know if you remember this, but Google went down uh-huh. and all, a lot of other hosting, like every major ISP internet service provider went down because almost every single DNS server went down as well because there was this huge distributed denial of service attack that was doing network probing like work, essentially probing the internet, looking for something. They yeah. don't know. They never identified what it was looking for, but it took the internet down for about a day for during the middle of the work, work day. Uh, I think it was like, and you know, we never got any answers on that uh, or anything else like that. But that was, that was a big deal. And then the election happened like two weeks later and yeah. it was a close call. Right. And I wouldn't be surprised if, or even if something like that doesn't happen again, it's very likely that, you know, the groundwork has, once you know where machines are, you don't need to go look for them again. Well, and, and, and uh, so I understood maybe half of what you said uh, when you got into the network stuff, but, but I think, uh, 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 yeah, you're right on, on, the, on the tech side, but even the non-tech stuff right now, the groundwork is being laid for all sorts of fraud. Like you're hearing stuff like uh, recently out of Michigan where they're talking about these like, I forget the word they use for it, but like you can go pick up ballots for people and bring them in. And, and like there's some, there's some wacky stuff going on that yeah. we've never seen. And so I think this election in particular is being set up to be contested, stolen, something. Yeah. Something's going on. And so we're, we may see some serious wackiness. The, the other interesting part of that, well, so one of, the, one of the questions I have about that or one of the concerns is, one of the reasons our country has worked for as long as it has is we do have a peaceful transition of power yeah. and people accept the results. And so I think we're setting up something here in November that no matter what happens, it's going to be set up to be not accepted. Uh, we're not going to accept the results. And then add, add this wild card. In 2000, the, the president was basically selected by the Supreme Court because yeah. of how contested that was at a five to four vote. Well, if you only have eight justices right now, how are they going to do the five to four vote? Like that's a case for you probably need that ninth justice before the election is in place because it could come down to that again. And that's that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And what's even um, more disturbing is it's like you don't even need to have actual election interference. You just need the possibility and the accusation of election interference in order to get a large enough percentage of the American populace angry, upset, unaccepting of voting results, and then, I want to say disillusioned, maybe even violently so, uh, with the current structure of our our world. Yeah. That's consistent with cancel culture, right? Like, uh, just the, you don't have to have an actual offense, just the suspicion of maybe something. Yeah. 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 And so I, I'm really worried about what things are going to look like in the few weeks after the election, just because it's, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're on a dark path and we have as a culture, there's a lot of bitter pills that we need to take. Mm -hmm. But I think that we're just, we don't have the political will to make any change Mm -hmm. that's meaningful, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, that's why, uh, that is one of the reasons I'm glad I, I work in and, and I'm part of the church because we, we are playing a, diff- playing a different game here. Like, king, you know, kingdoms will rise and fall right. and, and countries will rise and fall. And I don't have to have my identity tied up in 
did my guy win or did this happen? You know, like it's like Thomas Aquinas, right? After the fall of Rome, where he was like, you know, king of man, kingdom of God, or something like that. Uh, was it Saint Augustine? Well, yeah, I think, I think it was so. Augustine actually. Yeah. yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, or he's just like, hey, you know, like this isn't this isn't our home. This isn't our kingdom, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, we're here to spread God's kingdom, not to make yeah. a nicer road to hell. I guess. Yeah, for sure. Um, so. Sorry, that was a little dark. Uh, what do you think we as the church should be praying for? You know, there's there's always your personal prayers, that stuff that people are working through. But I think there's something, if you look through the Old Testament, like what the prophets and different people are praying, they would pray that God would hear them. God, hear our cry, hear our plea, hear our... Not that God can't hear, but that you want God to actually act hmm. and do something. And so I think I think as the church should be praying, God, hear us and and act and fix some things that are broken um you know people always quote the uh that's the second samuel passage around um you know if, if my people will humble themselves and pray then i will heal their land you know thou hear the mm. cry and heal their yeah. land people love that verse like that's the kind of verse you put on coffee mugs but the verse right before it explains how god afflicted their land it's like god's going i'm gonna mess it up if you guys will pray i'll fix it and it's like, wait, why do you just maybe not mess it up in the first place? You know, like that's the part we never think about. We're like, oh, if God would just heal our land. I'm like, well, what if God also caused the thing that is not healed about your land? Like, which is complicated, right? That's where yeah. you got to like go into the messiness of scripture. So I, I, I would say whether you want to lay COVID at God's feet or the economy or any of that kind of stuff, that's not incredibly useful. But I, I, I would say that, that the church needs to be praying that corporately that, that, uh, people would love well that more people pray for revival, that more people would come to know Christ through this. Maybe what COVID has done or maybe what or 2020 has done, it has exposed the absolute bankruptcy of the worldviews that people are living under. The mm. the emptiness of the kingdom without a king, the emptiness of our economy, yeah. the emptiness of my life is exists just to have nice things and get my kid into a good college and go on good vacations. Like maybe we're seeing that. And so I guess the church can pray that, that peep that that light bulb comes on and that more people come to know Christ through this. And they realize that you can't build a life around just living nicely and safely hmm. until you die. Love it. Cool. Thank you for, I don't know, making time to chat today. Yeah, I know I, you've got a lot I'm going on. I'm glad to. No, I'm glad to. This is, there's a lot, there's a lot happening right now. So it's good to talk it through. Yeah. Thanks again. Maybe I can check in with you after the election if, uh, yeah. we'll if be, everything isn't on fire. We'll, yeah. We'll be doing this from like a bunker. <laughs> That's right. We're going to do this from a fallout shelter where we're, uh, we're, we're, we're like radio free America. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see. I'll get a ham radio. Yeah. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks. Thank you. Hopefully you heard something new and you'll join us next time in our secret underground bunker. Unfortunately, the ham radio is still on order, so we'll keep the show as a podcast for the time being. That said, thanks for joining me today in this little social experiment. To continue the conversation, check out our app and connect with one of our volunteers, or invite someone in your circle of friends to have a God-centered discussion. And subscribe to the podcast, which should continue rolling at episodes each month. If you like what you heard, please be sure to recommend us to a friend and give us a positive review in the Apple Podcast Store. It really helps people find the show. As a bonus, I'll read a shout-out to you in the next episode. And finally, just in case you missed it at the top of the show, please consider supporting this ministry financially. 
This program and our mobile app are only possible because of individual donors like you. Please prayerfully consider adding this ministry to your end of year giving. Coffee with the Christian is a registered 501c3, so all donations are tax deductible. Thanks again for checking us out. May God bless you and Christ be praised.